Hello, everyone, and welcome to this session of Red Start, an educational program put on by the Red Star San Francisco Caucus of uh, DSA San Francisco. Uh, as a reminder, uh, if you ended up on this call but haven't registered yet, please uh, visit this link. Uh, if somebody could post that in the chat, that would be great uh, so that you can hear about the next session. You can also visit bit.ly slash redstartqs to see more details about this session. But I'll do a quick summary about what Red Star is and what Red Start is. Uh, Red Star is a revolutionary Marxist caucus uh, currently organizing within DSA San Francisco. Uh, we do both uh, local and national organizing for DSA. Uh, our general approach is to help push for any shared organization uh, reforms that make DSA a more effective avenue of struggle for every organizer. Uh, we work to push DSA San Francisco to organize within strategic arenas of struggle, and we try to develop stronger theoretical knowledge for ourselves and the organization. Uh, a little bit about Red Start. Uh, it is an educational program that we put on. Uh, we were doing it earlier this year once weekly. We're likely going to move it uh, to probably about once a month. Uh, our goals here are uh, one, political education for DSASF and for DSA nationally. Um, one is political education and leadership development for Red Star members to put uh, Red Star members in positions to help facilitate conversations, uh, do analysis of the text and uh, do lectures like I'll be doing in a little bit, um, as well as help develop organizers that we want to continue to work with both uh, locally and nationally. Uh, we have a couple expectations, so just to be clear about what we're going to be expecting from everyone as we move into breakout rooms. Uh, one is to come in with an open mind to any of the ideas that have been presented in the texts. Uh, that doesn't mean that we don't uh, disagree with part or all of the text presented or uh, any of the uh, you know historical figures presenting them, but we do have to you know be able to take them on their own terms and discuss what we can learn from them. Uh, one expectation is to engage with each other in good faith and assume good faith in all interactions, uh, be chill, basically. Uh, and third, uh, we ask folks to make an honest attempt to engage with the text before the live session, whatever that means to you. Um, we do want folks to have come actually, you know, having gone through it in some capacity, of course, doesn't need uh, to understand it without any uh, reservations. Uh, so just as a reminder about uh, where we've been with Red Start, um, we started with a, a series of what we thought would be a good kind of broad introductory uh, course for some uh, influential texts uh, from uh, the Marxist tradition. Uh, and then we moved into a three text unit specifically about imperialism, reading imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, neocolonialism, the final stage of imperialism, and wretched of the earth. Uh, we're still trying to figure out exactly what our broad philosophy going forward is. But again, uh, we're looking to host this about uh, once a month. Uh, and it's worth noting for those who've attended Red Start uh, or even are looking at this list uh, that many of our texts that we've chosen directly contradict one another. Some contain analyses which were flat out incorrect even at the time, uh, and some were well-reasoned but ultimately made predictions about future events that failed to transpire when tested by history. As scientific socialists in the tradition of Marx, Engels, and uh, many millions who've come uh, after them, 
we see anti-capitalist formations around the world and throughout history as experiments in the struggle to establish a new social order and transcend the capitalist mode of production. And every text we read gives us new information about the results and discoveries of that experimental process. So uh, whether uh, when we read a text or choose it for Red Start, our goal is not simply to determine whether it is good or bad or even correct or incorrect. What we wanna do is to develop our ability to use critical thinking and an application of historical context to learn more about the world and its workings. Uh, as we go through the texts, then we want to be asking ourselves some core questions. How does reading this text, uh, where it's correct and where it's incorrect, advance our philosophical understanding of core concepts? Where the author holds a correct analysis, what allowed them to reach that perspective? Where the author is laboring under a misconception, what are the origins of that misconception? Uh, why was the text written in the first place? What does that help us understand? Uh, and most importantly, what can we apply to our own organizing? Which brings us to our piece, Joseph Stalin's 1938 Dialectical and Historical Materialism. Sitting here 30 years after the dissolution of the Soviet project, our discussion of the political perspectives of Stalin or other leaders of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union throughout its development is relatively theoretical in orientation. As communists, we believe it's important to understand and operate using principles of Marxism because we see it as a guide to correct and effective action. But to a certain extent, as we organize here in America or in movements around the world, uh, we're on our own. It's our free choice, even as organizers, to spend our Sundays talking about dialectics. Uh, and it's our free choice uh, to incorporate it into our work or not. It doesn't really have much of a material impact, except you know uh, whether we think it'll be effective or not. Uh, but in much of the 20th century, the work of socialist and communist organizers around the world had a real material connection to the political orientation of the largest organized socialist power, the USSR. This was far from just a question of individual parties asking themselves, what can we learn from the USSR's development like we're here to do today? Uh, through organizations like the Communist International in the period between 1917 and 1943, and the Communist Information Bureau or other organs of the CPSU formed post-World War II, the Soviet Union served to directly steer the activities of countless communist parties around the world, including the CPUSA here in America. So it's for that reason, the role of the Soviet project in determining the course of world communism that we think a critical read of dialectical and historical materialism is useful. We can look at the world we live in today, one without a union of Soviet socialist republics, uh, and clearly see that the USSR specifically did not succeed in bringing about world communism. This I think is a broadly aligned read of our historical condition. But the question of why that is the case requires further investigation. So I'd like to outline a few parallel stories of the history of this text, uh, all of which I think can be used to read something valuable out of Stalin's work. Uh, the first story goes like this. From 1936 to 1938, Joseph Stalin executed a great purge within the Soviet Union, arresting and publicly executing many of the last remaining Bolsheviks uh, and signing off on uh, many uh, campaigns, which resulted in the deaths of a lot of people. Uh, Stalin consolidated power around himself as the paramount leader of the USSR. 
as part of the preparation for this struggle, Stalin commissioned a textbook to serve as the authoritative study uh, story to justify his personality cult, both within and outside of the country. In order to further an image of himself as a sort of philosopher king figure, Stalin authored or claimed to author the chapter about dialectical materialism. Though it contains many errors, the personality cult was strong enough to repress uh, opposition and survive until Stalin's death in 1953, uh, before it was dismantled in Khrushchev's secret speech denouncing Stalin's crimes in 1956. Uh, in this story, we can read Stalin's text as a calcification, a final entrenchment of a proletarian revolutionary struggle into a state ideology used to justify whatever Stalin as a person wanted it to justify at the expense of the democratic movement. The second story goes like this. Following the rise of Hitler in 1933 on a platform of systematic eradication of the twin Jewish evils of high finance and Bolshevism, Stalin recognized the massive threat posed by Nazism on the socialist project and the people of the USSR in particular. Battling internal contradictions within the USSR, particularly with the military, Stalin emerged victorious from an internal power struggle and reoriented the Soviet Union to focus on preparing for the coming war. This meant an internal ratcheting up of state capacity for military mobilization and an external uh, messaging strategy built to buy as much time as possible and ensure that England and the US would fight alongside the Soviets against Nazism. This required a well-operating machinery able to steer and direct foreign communist movements towards this strategic objective. Dialectical and historical materialism was part of the ideological apparatus intended to facilitate the defense of global communism. Moves like the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact uh, for non-aggression with Germany and the external peace narrative served to delay the USSR's entrance into the war at the expense of many lives in some of the European states, but they bought enough time to build up military capacity to prevent a full extermination of the Soviet people, which was Germany's plan uh, in order to facilitate Lebensraum for the uh, people of the Third Reich, uh, when Operation Barbarossa commenced and the Germans eventually invaded the USSR, the Soviets were able to win the war against Germany uh, and allow the socialist project to continue its development. In this story, we can try to read Stalin's text as an expansion, an ideological work meant to help uh, build support to defend the Soviet project against reaction and equip revolutionaries in other countries with some of the philosophical foundations to analyze their own conditions. The third story goes like this. The 1917 Bolshevik Revolution took everyone, including the Bolsheviks, by surprise. All of the work of Marx and Engels had led folks to expect that socialist revolution would develop in the countries that had the most advanced capitalist production, like Germany and England. When revolution broke out in Russia, the Bolsheviks believed that the project they were embarking on could only occur as the opening shots of a global revolution in the capitalist countries. But when the post-World War I revolutionary ferments failed to result in that global revolution, when the industrialized countries failed to turn the imperialist war into a civil war, the Bolsheviks were left holding the bag. Facing difficult conditions, the Soviet project built up its capacity to oppose global capitalism, trying to face the dual perils of reaction and ineffectiveness. Though there were moments when the tide maybe could have been turned in the global revolutionary struggle, the demobilization of the working class required to effectuate things like no strike pledges in the capitalist countries during World War II meant that picking up the pieces back after World War II was too great a task, or at least a risk that Stalin was unwilling to take at the time. 
The ascendant war-mobilized U.S. empire was able to consolidate European capital into its orbit and force the USSR into the uneasy peace that would spell their doom. The USSR set itself terms of surrender, which would require it to compete on the terms of capitalism, and the Soviet bloc and its contradictions with rising third world communist movements was no match for a superpowered global US empire, wheels greased by overt and covert military action. Uh, in this story, we can read Stalin's text and much of the work of the Bolsheviks as an improvisation, an attempt to map centuries worth of political theory onto a reality where the planned path to socialism was slipping out of their grasp as the Soviet bloc no longer became capable of single-handedly marking out the way forward. I think it should be obvious at this point that to a certain extent, all of these stories are true uh, and all of these stories are false. Stalin's dialectical material and historical materialism is all at once a calcification and expansion and an improvisation. The question we should discuss as we move into breakout rooms is not uh, which of these stories is true, but rather what each of these approaches to the history of the text can teach us. Where the text is correct, what can we learn from it? Where the text is wrong, why is it wrong? And what can it teach us about the Soviet project as we work to develop a clear path forward? Uh, thank you. And with that, uh, we will now move into our breakout rooms. All right. Uh, welcome back, everyone. Uh, as part of Red Start, we include a brief discussion uh, from the host about what we as organizers think we can learn from the text, uh, which will follow with a Q&A session. Uh, so please type uh, question followed by your question, and we'll answer uh, until we run out of time. Uh, so what can we as modern day organizers learn from uh, dialectical and historical materialism? Uh, to start with, we can take the text on its own terms as a summary of the philosophical outlook of dialectical materialism and an application of this theory to practical party work. Here, there are a few key points from the work which align with many other Marxist theorists. The basic outline of dialectical reasoning Stalin outlays are themselves useful for a correct read of the Marxist philosophical method. First, an acknowledgement of any natural phenomenon as indelibly connected with the rest of the totality is an incredibly useful approach as we work to comprehend capitalism uh, in its totality. Any human being is only a human insofar as they live as one might say, in a society. It's our social being which determines our consciousness and any actions that we take to change our conditions, say uh, revolution, will be uh, determined through and around those uh, social conditions and will be inherently social in nature and will be inherently involved with all of the other uh, parts of the totality that we find ourselves in. Uh, again, the acknowledgement of nature as in a state of continuous change with phase changes happening rapidly helps us acknowledge the process of definition that form our daily life. The world we face was made from something that was different to what it is today, uh, and tomorrow's world will be different uh, than what the world is today as well. Uh, capitalism developed through a steady incorporation and eventual overturning of the feudal project, and it's only through that process of quantitative change that the qualitative change to say that we are living under the capitalist mode of production is possible. Uh, if we comprehend capitalism as something historic, we can begin to comprehend the process by which it uh, may be ended and replaced with uh, something that we might consider better. And finally, the inherent contradictions within nature where existence always occurs in a state of external and internal opposition helps us comprehend the struggles inherent in our social life. 
Dialectics means comprehending every physical, mathematical, and social phenomenon as embodying a unity of opposites, positive and negative, dark and light, capital and labor, humans as both physical and spiritual beings. All of these are small manifestations of dialectics in our daily lives. Uh, as Stalin continues into questions of historical materialism and the applications of these concepts to the work of the party, uh, we get to some orientations that, in my opinion, we might want to take with a grain of salt as we read them in the historical context we discussed earlier. As George Lukacs writes in his critique, since we have to do with a popular work written for the masses, no one could fault uh, with Stalin for reducing the quite subtle and complex arguments of the classics on this theme to a few definitions enumerated in schematic textbook form. But the fate of the philosophical sciences since the publication of this work shows that this is a matter of conscious methodology and of a deliberate cultural policy. So as we may have discussed in our breakout rooms, there's a lot to learn from the latter parts of the text in particular by reading Stalin's text in its historical context. Where Stalin performs certain simplifications or further afield claims, we can apply our understanding of the history to think about how a text operates not simply as unearthing of a correct position, but as a political document in its own right, written to have specific effects uh, within both the inner and outer life of uh, the organization that is producing it. Uh, where Stalin makes claims uh, that maybe go a little bit further than uh, other Marxist theorists might make, particularly around uh, the world and its laws in general and, and, uh, and in specific being knowable or uh, discussing socialism as converted from a dream of a better future for humanity into a science uh, that go further into potentially a, a more mechanical definition than Marx or Engels ever did, we can see how the historical position of Stalin with internal power struggles, purges, as well as again, the Nazi threat looming uh, over the Soviet project might've pushed him to either believe or at least simply advance stronger or more adamant claims than might otherwise have been advanced. A text, like anything produced by human beings, is a social object, and by reading dialectical and historical materialism as the social object that it is, we can understand more about both the core concepts discussed and the history of the global socialist movement. But regardless of where those conversations lead us, dialectics is a powerful object in the hands of the working class, and reading and discussing this text, we believe, uh, hopefully did and can help us refine our thinking and improve our work as part of the history that developed it and part of what we believe to be the future history of the socialist movement. Uh, and with that, we'll move into Q&A. So if there are any uh, questions about the text, uh, any lingering uh, pieces still for folks, uh, we can take a couple minutes to answer them. Uh, yeah, so we have a question from Artem. Does Red Star believe things exist? Um, I think this is a uh, an important question for us to answer. Uh, Red Star does not actually uh, take a uh, formal line on the question of things existing, uh, though I would say broadly the position that Red Star has is that um, we should act and carry ourselves as if they are. The position that things exist uh, and that they have relations with each other has seemed broadly to be more effective in changing conditions of the world to make things better than acting as if they don't exist, and uh, we're going to continue to act as if uh, things exist. Um, again, act as if being this sort of, you know, general uh, goal of seeing philosophy as a guide to action. Again, previous philosophers merely interpreted the world. The point is to change it. Um, ultimately, acting as if these things exist and can be shaped uh, towards particular ends. We've 
seen to be a more powerful historical orientation. And broadly, that's the orientation that we'd want to take. Michael asks, how should we consider the DSA national platform as dialectical materialists? Uh, so for those who aren't aware, DSA as an organization recently developed a uh, national platform, which was ratified uh, at the national convention in August. Um, a, a couple thoughts on this. I think one, it speaks to generally the uh, process of DSA developing uh, stronger mechanisms by which to align on and drive forward particular political positions. Um, you know, broadly as uh, historical materialists, we recognize that um, parties guided by uh, clear political uh, lanes are those that are going to be most effective. Um, and we think that DSA developing these structures to land on uh, aligned approaches to the different sectors and uh, arenas of struggle that we fight in is a good step forward. Um, ultimately, the fact to me that the platform has both, um, you know, mid-level policy demands as well as further afield goals uh, that things like a new constitutional convention are obviously not going to happen by electing enough socialists into office, but it uh, advances the acknowledgement that we will not actually be able to achieve some of the uh, goals of our platform without a, a further push of the struggle beyond the bounds in which we find it. Um, if there's particular planks of the platform that uh, we want to respond to, I think we could do that. Um, but broadly, I, I would say it reflects um, DSA coming to a more serious position. Uh, to me, acknowledging that the big tent is not just, uh, you know, a bunch of ideologies floating out in the world, but a collection of concrete people doing work together. Um, to me, the big tent is less about um, ideologies, which are static, which are fixed, um, than it is about a broad swath of people, um, people with a history of uh, organizing in different ways that are effective together, coming to political positions through that process um, is not what, like big tent doesn't mean that that doesn't happen. And starting to have some mechanisms by which DSA comes to positions that guide our action is uh, broadly a, a positive step forward. I have a question from another Michael. Uh, what is the value of reading this piece of philosophical work versus other pieces on the same subject? Uh, what would some other pieces Red Star folks would recommend? Uh, yeah, so I mean, to me, I think uh, reading dialectical and historical materialism, like I've said, at least my own position is it's um, broadly a pretty straightforward text in the first half and then goes a little off, in my opinion, uh, later on. Um, I think that's useful. I think it's, uh, if, if folks haven't been in our shared doc, I think there's a good discussion around different parts that were like, eh, I don't know how we feel about that and allows us to clarify our thinking. Um, that broadly was kind of our approach. We wanted to take something that was able to speak to the position of the Soviet Union at this particular period in history. As I outlined, it is this sort of like fulcrum point for the Soviet project in a lot of ways in the mid 1930s. Um, I, I would say I, I would take less with a grain of salt some of the other texts that Red Star has already read. Um, though, of course, again, any work that you're going to read as a social text, you're going to have to read into it its own history, its own purposes. Uh, socialism, Utopian and Scientific, On Contradiction, On Practice um, were uh, pieces that Red Star uh, has previously done Red Start sessions on, and I thought were um, pretty, uh, pretty useful. Uh, question from Katio. Did the end of the Stalin period, to use a neutral term, yep, we'll, we'll say the, the period of which Stalin was a guy, uh, eventually he stops being a guy, starts being a like a wax figure somewhere in 
Russia embalmed something, uh, change official Soviet dialectics. Uh, I know more was added around bypassing capitalism, but more generally speaking. Um, yeah, I, I won't uh, profess to be a, a deep Soviet history expert on this. Um, I'm sure uh, some folks, even in my original speech, are you know, reading in some shit I got wrong, and you can share some feedback afterwards, and we'll always uh, learn from it. Um, I think one thing to note is uh, there's a, a CIA document that I saw somewhere that was sort of a, a like a reminder that Stalin's leadership itself was a lot more uh, collaborative than uh, people gave it credit for. Of course, this is never gonna be the CIA's public line, um, but that um, Stalin's leadership style was at least a little bit more um, oriented around the, the general Politburo. So I think that's one thing to note. Um, Post-Stalin, Khrushchev very much made a show of uh, creating what I might actually assert to be kind of a negative personality cult around Stalin, right? Like de-emphasizing the material process by which Stalin himself was able to be in a position to steer things in a bad direction um, and just sort of re-emphasizing just like this individual guy was the problem. Um, you know, within, within that context, there were these, you know, particular changes that they tried to take to like move to what was perceived or could be perceived as a more like uh, flexible and and you know broad view of uh, dialectical conditions. Again, you know you read into your history what you want. The term tanky refers to particular periods, not in Stalin's history, right? Um, and so uh, you know I, I I don't profess to be enough of an expert to talk too deeply on it, but you know generally at least that was a, an image that they wanted to project, which I think like always is sometimes correct and sometimes incorrect. Uh, question, what is the relationship between dialectical materialism and history and anarchism? That is a great question. Uh, so to me, dialectical materialism is a you know, particular philosophy uh, that has you know, an association with specifically the Soviet project, like diamat as like an object, uh, in addition, there is like dialectical materialism broadly is like a way of comprehending the world, the guiding principle for Marx and Engels work, uh, though they were part of parties like a lot of their work um, that we're um, most aware of is like less about the practical party work that they did, which they were very much part of than you know, their theoretical basis and their orientation. Um, you know, broadly, the relationship I would say between uh, Marxism and anarchism is uh, is one of holding in in one's mind a, a relatively similar horizon of possibility, right? To say that um, Marxists and anarchists believe both um, that the abolition of authority, the abolition of uh, of uh, class structures, is going to be you know a process of liberation for humankind. Um, the dialectical, or maybe more usefully, like the scientific socialist uh, perspective would be to say that, you know, that process is itself um, a historical process that, um, that needs to be comprehended in all of its contradiction, in all of its difficulties, and in all of its, um, you know, uh, in all of its, like, actual real power, um, as, uh, as many anarchists will sort of uh, disdain the concept of authority in general um, and say that, uh, you know, the, the anarchist project is one which, you know, disdains authority from any one person to another person, whereas generally the, uh, the Marxist or uh, communist perspective would be that, like, authority is necessary for 
a revolutionary project. Um, Engels's piece on authority, I think is actually a really great uh, example of the question of authority. And it was written like, you know, by Engels and we're still having basically the same conversations we were having uh, 150 years ago, um, that it's not simply enough to decry authority in general, but to be specific, right? Capitalist authority and the state's uh, suppression of the capitalist movement is particular and has its particular connotations, and that a communist movement, were it to develop and take power, would need to exercise power to ensure that capitalism doesn't return, that capitalism is not um, something that can mount a counter-reaction. That requires power. That requires a reckoning with uh, complicated events and, and approaches that in our current model may not be even considered moral. And to be able to actually you know, reckon with those things and acknowledge our, our own morality as, uh, as a changing object that is going to have different connotations as we move through the process of revolution um, is, uh, is an important piece. So I, I spent like five minutes talking about a question that like is very difficult. Uh, are there any other, maybe any other Red Star members who might want to step forward to give some of their thoughts? Because I think this is a really important question. What is the difference between dialectical materialism uh, and anarchism? Maddie? I mean, yeah, just, yeah, sure. Just briefly to say, um, uh, just to go back real quick, uh, recommendations for reading uh, along the lines. Sam mentioned uh, Mao's four essays on philosophy are quite good on historical dialectical materialism. Uh, Bukharin, uh, also wrote a textbook on this that was that's very good, and also I would say Walton Roddy has a essay which about uh, African Marxism, which is worth looking up. So a lot of different things. Um, but besides that, yeah, I think a thing to say, and this is obviously like a real flattening of it, is that, uh, and this I think is how it's posed, you know, at the time and subsequently, is just that it's a conflict between an idealist and materialist view. Um, the criticism of, I think, maybe a more facile version of anarchism than many people hold is just that it is idealistic. It does not grapple with reality. It just posits, like Sam mentioned, um, just some badness of authority, for example. Um, and we're against hierarchies per se. And you know that even if those things are sort of bad abstractly, well, you might have to do some bad things or engage with things you don't like because we live in history, because we are conditioned by everything that has happened. So. You know, you can't just say, well, you know, we don't like capitalist authority and that's bad. And we don't, and then translate that into, uh, we don't like authority at all. And therefore we will re refuse to use it uh, because that's self-defeating. Um, so that I think would be the major criticism. That's not a new thing to say. I think that's basically what's been said for the past hundred something years. And like I said, I wanna be generous. Um, I think, uh, you know, People have evolved their thoughts in a lot of ways, but yeah, that, that's that's roughly a similar. It's not nothing new, like I said. Yeah, I think there's also just a, uh, a a general view in terms of the process of like development of specifically technology or what we might in this piece call like the uh, forces of production, like create the mechanism by which a classless society is possible, right? Like the history of of uh, human civilization is the history of trying to figure out the right way to organize stuff, to make stuff so that we don't all starve. And it is through the process of capitalist production that actually lays the groundwork for that realization of the social dream through the, you know, the eventual uh, obsolescence of the 
non-working uh, and exploiting class, which is the bourgeoisie. Uh, was Stalin a thing? I think I already answered that. We want to act as if he was a thing, uh, regardless. Like, I've never met him. I don't know, but I think we should assume he's, he was a guy. All right. Uh, with that, we'll uh, pass you off to a very nice uh, Sunday afternoon uh, or Sunday morning for those joining us from New Zealand or Monday morning for those joining us from New Zealand. Uh, pardon. Uh, and uh, thank you all so much for joining. We hope you had a good discussion. Uh, I will post a feedback link in the chat. Uh, please do take a few minutes to share any feedback, positive or negative, um, very much helps us uh, improve. We see uh, all of our work as a scientific process, uh, and we believe that the social science of doing good education is part of that as well. Uh, with that, I'll, uh, I'll end it there. Thank you all so much.